January 21st, 1968. An eerie quiet blanketed the South Korean presidential mansion known as the Blue House. President Park Chung-hee was asleep, unaware that 31 communist guerrillas were making their way through the capital city of Seoul. The insurgents belonged to Unit 124, a commando faction of North Korea's military. Park's surveillance team realized something was amiss as the large group of men approached the presidential residence. Soldiers mobilized to defend the Blue House. The conflict escalated and soon gunfire was exchanged. The outcome was gruesome. The guards fatally shot all but two of the guerrillas. President Park himself didn't learn of the attempted attack until later, but when he did, he was livid. This was a direct, calculated plot by North Korea to kill him. Ending the Park regime would usher in a wave of instability. Instability that would allow the North to infiltrate South Korea and unify the peninsula under communist control. Park wouldn't allow it. He would tighten his grip to ensure his country wasn't permeated by rebels. And if people suffered due to his policies, that was a price he was willing to pay. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Kate Leonard. And I'm your host, Bill Thomas. You can find episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Assassinations for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're discussing the assassination of Park Chung-hee, the second president of South Korea. He was killed on October 26, 1979, by his longtime colleague, Korean Central Intelligence Director Kim Jae-gyu. This week, we'll discuss Pak's turbulent rise to power following a military coup. We'll also explore the early signs of public discontent in the years leading up to his murder, which may have motivated one of his closest advisors to kill him. Next week, we'll discuss Kim Jae-gyu's trial and the political fallout. Finally, we'll look at how Pak's death affected South Korea's evolution as a democracy. On August 15, 1974, First Lady Yu Gong-su wore orange. It was a color that suited her. She sat behind her husband as he took the stage. 
President Park Chung-hee was speaking to a crowd at Seoul's National Theater for the annual celebration of South Korea's Independence Day. But a man charged forward, interrupting the president's speech. He pushed through the crowd and fired a gun. He was aiming at the president's podium, but missed his mark. His fourth bullet hit First Lady Yu Gong-su in the head. She slumped off her chair. Pak's bodyguards sprang to capture the attacker, Moon Se-kwang, a communist sympathizer. After Kwang was seized and taken out of the room, the theater fell eerily silent. Pak Chung-hee returned to the podium as his severely injured wife was carried off stage. Rather than attend to the dying first lady, he completed his speech. The audience was shocked. They gave a somber applause as Pak finally gathered his wife's handbag and stepped off stage. This moment was typical of Pak's complicated reputation. As South Korea's second president, Pak Chung-hee built his legacy on being a strong man. He couldn't be intimidated, and he would do whatever it took to overhaul the country's economic landscape. While he was instrumental in increasing domestic prosperity in the 1960s and 70s, Pak rarely compromised, using brutal tactics to stay in power. The last months of his presidency were marked by student riots and civil unrest. Yet, as author Michael Newton explained, in spite of despotism, many South Koreans still revere Pak Chung-hee as an anti-communist hero and his nation's most efficient ruler in the post-World War II era. He led the nation at a key moment of transformation. South Korea, which was established as a republic in 1948, went through several dramatic upheavals before Pak came to power. After Japan annexed the nation as a colonial proxy in 1910, the entire Korean peninsula remained under imperial Japanese rule for nearly 35 years. The country was forced to export its most valuable commodities, such as rice and cotton textiles, for the Japanese empire's enrichment. Then, during World War II, one of their chief outputs became munitions for the Japanese military. Only after the war concluded did the chance to self-govern arise. Since Japan was on the losing side of World War II, their colonial rule over Korea was no longer feasible. The Supreme Command of Allied Powers, or SCAP, a council overseeing Japan's reconstruction, disbanded the imperial army and curbed its ability to rule proxy countries. However, two of the largest international powers, the USSR and the United States of America, were just entering the Cold War at the time, and they were eager to fill the power vacuum the Japanese empire left behind. And both sides invested in Korea. The country was divided in half. Russia claimed the North, while the South, reliant on foreign aid, allied with the United States. Each half of the peninsula had its own separate government and vastly different ideology. Russian influence brought Joseph Stalin's communism to North Korea. This directly opposed the American ideals of capitalism and democracy, which the U.S. was attempting to distill in the South. The two sides were pitted against each other politically and economically. 
This divide was widened when Lee Sing-man became South Korea's first president in 1948. Unlike many other intellectuals of the time, Lee believed that communism would eventually devolve into totalitarianism. This won him the support of the American military and the Truman administration. That support became necessary in 1950 when the South formally declared independence from North Korea, which triggered an invasion from the communist North. This conflict would escalate into the Korean War, which lasted for three years from 1950 to 1953. The 1953 armistice resulted in a demilitarized border, the DMZ, separating the North and South. The DMZ was created as a buffer to divide the Korean peninsula roughly in half and end the territorial disputes. With the borders officially drawn, the South Korean Republic continued to function as a democracy. President Lee Sing-man was re-elected three times in 1952, 1956, and 1960. The longevity of the E presidency didn't indicate a happy populace, though. The president was prone to extremes. He curtailed personal freedoms under the illusion of preventing threats from North Korea. He also used the paranoia about communism as an excuse to engage in widespread public surveillance. If a South Korean individual or their family was suspected to be sympathetic to Marxist ideology, he or she could be banned from leaving the country or from working at a government agency. Lee Sing-man also kept a tight grip on the economy. The government controlled South Korea's most important industries, from tobacco to salt to tea. As historians Che and Yoon found, the combination of dwindling resources, complaints about widespread corruption, and the discovery of election irregularities sparked student protests throughout South Korea in 1960. E's smoke and mirrors democracy proved South Korea wasn't immune to an unfortunate global pattern. Formerly colonized countries often fell under authoritarianism after declaring independence. Without the infrastructure necessary to support a healthy democracy, governments often consolidated power under a select few individuals. Liberties like freedom of speech and press were limited to minimize opposition and revolts. Before long, the government would be dismantling the new democracy instead of protecting it. President E fell into this same trap. To make matters worse, April 1960's presidential race further stoked tension between the government and its people due to E's blatant electoral fraud. Official results said he'd secured 88% of the vote, but this number was clearly incompatible with the large turnouts at earlier anti-government riots. After the rigged election, massive demonstrations erupted in South Korea's cities. In response, he allowed police to fire at civilian protesters. Upwards of 150 students were killed and hundreds more were injured. But the people wouldn't be intimidated anymore. The demonstrations continued, and finally, the United States stepped in. Under pressure from their foreign ally, President Lee resigned, and South Korea was left on shaky ground. Shortly after, former Vice President Chong Mien returned to office, 
this time as prime minister. Political unrest was still brewing, and the new democratic government was becoming increasingly unable to keep the chaos in check. Naturally, this created an opportunity for the future director of the Korean Central Intelligence Agency, Kim Jae-gyu. Kim had been born in 1926 in the small farming village of Kumi. Like many rural children of the era, he harbored a deep desire to leave the small town and pursue his destiny in a larger city. And there was only one reliable way to do that, through education. Kim received good grades and later attended Kyongbuk University to become a middle school teacher. But his passion didn't lie in teaching, and when the opportunity presented itself, he enlisted to serve in the Korean War. He quickly rose through the ranks, becoming a dynamic military leader. The New York Times reported Kim's rise succinctly. Quote, he became a commander of an infantry regiment by August 1950 held the division command by 1963 and was head of the key army security command in 1968 before taking over the third corps in 1971. His promotion to intelligence chief of the KCIA was in 1976. Kim Jae-gyu had eclipsed his humble origins to take a position of leadership in Seoul. But as intelligence chief, he was about to find that serving his country meant he'd have to violate his own moral beliefs. The only way to save the nation was to commit murder. Up next, we'll follow the story of another military leader who gained political prominence, Park Chung-hee, the second president of South Korea, and the man Kim Jae-gyu would assassinate. Now, back to the story. South Korea was in a constant state of transition throughout the 20th century. As it transformed from a Japanese territory to an independent nation, young politically-minded men like Kim Jae-gyu rose through the ranks in order to protect the country's interests. But Kim would soon find himself in conflict with a revolutionary named Park Chung-hee, who was on his own mission to change South Korean history. Pak's ambition stemmed from his humble upbringing. He was born in Kumi, a village in South Korea's North Gyeongsang province, the same village where Kim Jae-gyu would be born nine years later. His family was ill-prepared for an infant. In the months before Pak's birth, the region had dealt with severe weather. Another child would strain the family's meager resources. And Pak's mother, Peck Namui was 43, which was considered too old to be pregnant. She's rumored to have unsuccessfully attempted to abort the pregnancy. Nevertheless, Pak was born a healthy baby on November 14, 1917. He grew into a restless boy looking to make his mark on the world. He was curious and driven, qualities that ordinarily would have helped him stand out in school. But as academics Che and Yun observed in their paper, Liberalism in Korea, quote, the Japanese colonial government did its utmost to suppress education among Koreans. With limited opportunities in rural communities, Pak was one of the lucky few in his village to receive a formal education. 
He and one of his brothers enrolled in an elementary school five miles away from his home, but it was a costly expense. Pac's mother gave him eggs to trade as collateral for school supplies. The walk to school in harsh weather often left Pac's lunch so frozen it wouldn't thaw in time to eat. He was always short, allegedly due to his inadequate nutrition in his childhood. But for all the obstacles he faced, school opened Pac's mind to his own potential. He developed an intense admiration for Napoleon Bonaparte. He identified with the French conqueror, noting their similar origins as poor outsiders with affectionate maternal figures. An article by the Japan News mused, perhaps because he lived in utter poverty, reading the biographies made Pac dream of building a prosperous country. Pac appeared to enjoy learning, and his high marks in elementary school paved the way for his acceptance to the Tegu Normal School, where he studied to be a teacher. This was a common path for men like Pac. The steady salary that came with teaching gave a clear upward path out of poverty for those in rural communities. However, once he reached secondary school, the academic excellence that Pac had exhibited during his youth stalled. His grades sank, likely due to the increased pressure of commuting to school and the financial burden associated with it. At Tegu, Pac was unable to barter eggs for his tuition. He now faced the challenge of cobbling together funds to pay for commuting and school fees. He borrowed money from his older brother and delayed paying for expenses for as long as possible. He even avoided hanging out with peers afraid that socializing would involve buying a meal or paying for snacks. Pac's teachers at Tegu noted the 18-year-old was sullen and grouchy. This reaction was understandable given the self-imposed isolation. And on top of mounting academic and financial pressure, Pak's father back in Kumi was in declining health. He urged his son to marry while he was still alive, which placed Pak in an unfortunate situation. The young man was in love with a woman at school, but she came from a family with considerable wealth, far above Pak's rank. The two were deemed an unfit match for marriage. So to appease his father, 18-year-old Pak instead married a woman from a nearby village in 1936. The couple had a daughter together shortly after, but other than their child, they shared little else in common. Eager to ignore the unhappy marriage, Pak focused all of his efforts on finishing his last year at the Tegu school. In March of 1937, despite his poor grades, 19-year-old Pak Chung-hee graduated and was assigned to teach at a school in Munyong. He taught for three years, but the small village was stifling for a young man with big dreams. He hadn't forgotten his old fascination with Napoleon. Now, with World War II on the horizon, he was harboring military aspirations. In 1940, 22-year-old Pak was accepted to the military academy, which would soon open in Manchuria. Throughout his training, his diligence and obedience were immediately noticed. He was one of the few Korean men at the academy to be selected to complete his final two years 
at the Japanese Military Academy in Zama. Park graduated in April of 1944 at the age of 26. He quickly returned to Manchuria, which at the time was under Imperial Japanese rule. For the next year, Park served in the Japanese Army as World War II drew to a close. But the end of the war left Park without roots. The defeated Japanese army was in shambles, and he had no desire to create a home in Manchuria. He returned to South Korea in May of 1946, and what he found was a nation transformed by war. South Korea was now under American occupation, and it was struggling to find its identity without the colonial Japanese government it had heeded for years. It was a country without direction, or as Park saw it, A country that offered ample opportunities for an ambitious veteran to reinvent himself. A new military academy had opened in Seoul, and Park longed to enroll. It would hone his skills and put him in a good position to pursue a role in the government. While Park prepared for the entrance examination, he returned home to his family. But no matter where he stayed in Kumi, the quiet idleness of his hometown was claustrophobic. Luckily, Park didn't have to wait long to get back to the fast-paced lifestyle he craved. He was granted admission into Constabulary Academy in Seoul in September of 1946. The 28-year-old Park was eager to use his military experience to defend and serve his country's new government. The future looked bright for Park. He gained traction as a reputable official within the constabulary, but whenever he was on the cusp of a promotion, suspicions about his loyalty arose. In 1947, rivals learned of Park's brief membership in the South Korean Workers' Party, a pro-communism leftist group. It's not clear what prompted Park to join. He didn't remain active in the organization for long, but the brief stint with the communists left a black mark on his record. South Korea was in a heightened state of anti-communist sentiment. Threats from the north were prevalent in the minds of both civilians and government officials. And the suspicions threatened to stall Park's career. At one point, he was even jailed and sentenced to death during President Lee Sing-man's regime. Allegedly, Park had organized a communist cell within the South Korean constabulary, but further investigation couldn't substantiate the charge. Thanks to high-level military officials who vouched for Park's loyalty, the sentence was dismissed. However, his reputation was still bruised. When the Korean War broke out in 1950, it gave Park a chance to prove himself and bury his past, at least temporarily. He could demonstrate his loyalty to South Korea, and the military had a pressing need for his strategic knowledge. His career seemed to be on an upswing, and things were going well in his personal life too. Around 1950, 33-year-old Park remarried, this time to a woman named Yoo Gong-soo. Their daughter Gun-hae was born two years later. With a loving wife and daughter at his side, Park spent the next 10 years climbing the ranks. Rising from major to major general, although he may not have known it at the time, Park's rise mirrored that of Kim Jae-gyu, who was also building a strong reputation and an illustrious military career of his own. 
The two men hailed from the same tiny village, but it's hard to say if they'd previously met, given their nine-year age difference. Now, however, the pair were on a collision course. Though he enjoyed his status as a reputable figure within the military, Pock's desire for power wasn't satiated. In the late 50s, his eye was already wandering towards the Yi Singmon regime. Pak was unabashedly self-confident. He could see the writing on the wall in terms of the ongoing protests and demonstrations. It seemed like it was only a matter of time before Yi Singmon was out and Pak could step in to fill the power vacuum. This assurance, combined with a lingering resentment towards E for his earlier arrest, motivated Pak to take action. President E resigned in 1960, but it was too late to save his legacy. Pak Chung Hee was already plotting a revolution. Up next, Pak participates in a coup and makes a deadly enemy. Now, back to the story. Earlier, we told the stories of two men, Pak Chung-hee and Kim Jae-gyu. Both were born in the rural Kumi village, both went to school to become teachers, and both left education to serve in the military. But it was President E. Sing-mon's resignation in 1960 that set 34-year-old Kim and 42-year-old Pak on divergent paths. Approximately a year after E. left office, around 3 a.m. on May 16, 1961, five military commanders gathered under the leadership of Kim Jong-pil, a well-known South Korean general. The group's plan was to overtake the new prime minister, Mien, and create an interim junta, a transitional government led by members of the military. Pak Chung-hee was an important architect of the coup. At 43, he was adamant that South Korea needed, in his own words, a revolution for stability and change. The commanders gathered that morning to begin the deployment of tanks and paratroopers through Seoul. Three hours later, at 6 a.m., the junta had control over most of Seoul's crucial strongholds. They occupied the military compound, the Korean Broadcasting Service, and the Army headquarters. That evening, the group seized and dissolved Korea's National Assembly. Then, a bevy of public restrictions were announced. A travel ban meant that no South Koreans could leave the country, and airport use was restricted. Banks were frozen, and a 10 p.m. curfew was set. Once the dust had settled, Pak announced the junta government would preside until the next general election cycle in 1963. In the interim, under Pak's direction, corrupt government officials were detained and a constitutional referendum was enacted. Pak also used his position within the junta to ensure any judges elected to the Supreme Court were in favor of the coup. Nobody would be in a position to oppose his takeover. And his precautions worked. Official elections were held in 1963, and Pak Chung-hee became the second president of South Korea in May of that year. Now in the highest government office, 46-year-old Pak was ready to reshape the country. 
For so long, he'd nurtured dreams that could now become a reality. He immediately focused on growing the economy. He created the Economic Planning Board, which lifted old restrictions on international trade and aggressively expanded the nation's exports. South Korea's economy surged. The rocketing growth is now known as the miracle on the Han River. Initiatives like the heavy chemical and industry drive, which transitioned the country's manufacturing focus from textiles to mechanical parts, throttled industrial production into overdrive. Pak was equally eager to develop Korea's more remote areas, like the tiny town he'd come from. He spearheaded the New Village Movement, which aimed to develop farming communities where poverty was still rampant. He also invested in infrastructure, from bridges to irrigation systems, believing this would pave the way for further prosperity. The rapid plan for modernization marked the birth of South Korea's Taebol, or large mega-enterprises which still exist today. The national slogan during Pak's presidency was, we can achieve anything if we work hard enough. The numbers were undeniable. Per capita GNP rose from $164 in 1968 to $1,242 in 1978. But the booming economy couldn't immunize Pak from all threats, especially those coming from outside the country. In January of 1968, a pack of North Korean communist guerrillas invaded Seoul. They attempted to enter the presidential residence, the Blue House, to assassinate Pak. Though they failed, the attack heightened Pak's paranoia. The next attempt proved far more tragic. In 1974, when President Pak was addressing a crowd outside the New National Theater, a communist sympathizer fired at him. He missed, instead killing Pak's wife, Yu Gongsu. In addition, a stray bullet hit and killed a 17-year-old girl in the crowd. It was clear that the danger wasn't limited to North Korean invaders. Pak was under threat from his own people. In the 1970s, Pak carefully watched the war unfolding in Vietnam. In a replay of the Korean War 20 years earlier, North Vietnam was backed by Communist China and the USSR, while the South was aided by the United States. As the Communist North toppled the Democratic South, Pak grew fearful that a similar Marxist uprising could come about in his own country. In order to ensure that never happened, he restricted the freedom of speech and press, and increased the dissemination of pro-government propaganda. Unfortunately, by using these tactics, Pak was already sliding into the familiar patterns of the failed regimes before his. He employed the Korean Central Intelligence Agency to handle subversives, which led to human rights atrocities, like unlawful imprisonment and torture. And one person within the KCIA was in the center of this conflict, Intelligence Director Kim Jae-gyu. Kim understood Pak's motives, but he disagreed with his actions. He saw the imprisonment of student protesters as not only immoral, but also impractical, since it could spur even more unrest. 
But Kim had his orders. Any public attempts at civil disobedience were met with hostility from the KCIA. The record isn't clear on what exactly Kim did, but he became known for his overt opposition to the Yushin, a new authoritarian constitution crafted under Pak's orders. Kim's open criticism of the constitution caused tensions between him and many of the president's closest advisors. In particular, Kim clashed fiercely with Pak's bodyguard and confidant, Cha Chi Chal. In October of 1979, Kim and Cha disagreed on what strategy would most effectively quash the public unrest. Kim believed the administration needed to be more receptive to the concerns of citizens. Cha was adamant that the KCIA should silence any opposition with brute force. Cha even blamed Kim Jae-gyu for the escalating student riots. He claimed that the opposition party, the NDP, were gaining ground due to the KCIA's failure to suppress the discontent. Pak seemed to share Cha's sentiment and gave orders to shut the NDP down. He attempted to silence his most outspoken critic by removing the party's leader, Kim Yong-sam, from the National Assembly. But this triggered an even larger and more violent cycle of civil unrest. Seoul National University hosted anti-government rallies multiple times in September of 1979, and upwards of 5,000 Pusan University students turned out to protest on October 16th. Similar student demonstrations began in the city of Pusan that same month. Pak realized this was an eerie mirror to the riots that had preceded Yi Singman's ousting. Naturally, his cabinet debated how to handle the demonstrations. The dilemma wouldn't be resolved quickly or quietly. But by focusing so much attention on the student protests, Pak failed to notice the real threats that were brewing within his own administration, and he was unprepared for the next attempt on his life. On the evening of October 26, 1979, 61-year-old President Pak was at the Kung Jong restaurant, a building tucked away inside a KCIA compound near the presidential mansion. His dining companions for the evening included his bodyguard, Cha Chi Chal, the KCIA chief, Kim Jae-gyu, and the Blue House Chief of Staff, Kim Kae-won. His three additional bodyguards were in a nearby room, accompanied by aides of KCIA Chief Kim. Each guest had served as a military officer, and everyone except Kim Jae-gyu had taken part in the military coup that had put Pak Chung-hee in power 18 years earlier. The only outsiders were two young women, singer Seem Soo Bong and student Sheen Ja So. It was customary at these dinners to have entertainment. Reportedly, Pak Chung-hee requested a song after the meal began. Seem Soo Bong sang the Korean ballad, The Person Back Then. The music did little to mitigate the negative energy in the room. General Kim Kae-won noticed that Kim Jae-gyu seemed uneasy. He was drinking, which was unusual, given his well-known liver problems. As the meal continued, 
The conversation shifted to the anti-government riots enveloping Seoul. Pak asked Director Kim whether his intelligence agents had prior knowledge that the protests would occur. The implication was that more initiative should have been taken to stop the unrest. Kim objected. He feared that the protests were an omen of a larger wave of revolt, one with the potential to destabilize the government. The situation required more delicacy than Pak realized. The president wasn't receptive to this theory. Instead, he blamed the KCIA again. He insinuated that he was toying with more severe tactics to stop protesters. The room went cold as he announced his new policy, shoot to kill. Enraged, Kim Jae-gyu stormed out of the room. Testimony varies as to what he did while he was outside. Some say Kim issued new orders to his aides. Others say he went to retrieve a handgun. He was certainly armed when he returned to the dining room and slid back into his seat. The conversation continued to sour as Kim Jae-gyu and bodyguard Cha Chi Chal debated the riots. Cha backed the president's view that the demonstrators should be silenced, viciously suggesting they should be, as he said, mowed down with tanks. The intelligence director decided he'd had enough. In response, he pulled his gun and fired at Cha Chi Chal. The shot clipped the bodyguard's elbow. He fled to the bathroom. Kim fired again, striking President Pak in the chest. Ignoring him, Pak's other bodyguard abandoned his post and staggered to the bathroom. Army General Kim Kai-wan also fled. The two women stayed with Pak Chung-hee, futilely attending to his wound. From the adjacent room, they could hear Kim Jae-gyu's aides shooting Pak's remaining bodyguards. Meanwhile, Kim seemed to be at an impasse. After the second shot, his 32 caliber pistol jammed. He left the dining room to borrow his aide's revolver. Armed again, he was determined to finish what he'd started. Kim easily found Chachi Chal in the bathroom. He shot him in the stomach, then returned to the dining room to see about the president. When he returned, the women finally fled the dining room. Now, there were no witnesses and no bodyguards around to interfere. Kim would make sure to hit his mark this time. He took aim and shot Pak behind the right ear. The bullet ended Pak's life and changed South Korea forever. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday with part two on Pak Chung-hee. We'll discuss the immediate aftermath of Pak's death and the trial of his killer, Kim Jae-gyu. 
We'll also look at how this murder shaped the future of South Korean politics. You can find all episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. And not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Assassinations, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Assassinations on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Assassinations was written by Mackenzie Moore with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 